0: The city of Philadelphia was a relatively uh, small city located in uh, eastern Pennsylvania and uh, not really. Okay. All right, so it's a little early to test to see if you're still awake, but uh, I had to force it in where I could. But it, it was a relatively small city located about uh, 40 miles southeast of Sardis and uh, it was located in an agricultural area much like our uh, city is. It was known for its vineyards, it was known for its wines. Its vineyards and its wines were a source of, of great income for the city of Philadelphia. The city was named after a king of Pergamus, whose name was Attalus Philadelphius. Uh, he was uh, born and raised and in into adult life simply known as Attalus. But because of his great love for uh, his brother, he became known as Attalus Philadelphius, uh, and, and Philadelphia means brotherly love in the Greek, or a love for the brethren. Uh, I think it's interesting uh, to note uh, in, in this vein, there is a love That the Bible talks about called a phileo love, a Philadelphia love. We're familiar with the agape love that God supplies to us. It's an unconditional, any way love that God gives us by his Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But the Bible says that we're not only to love one another as Christians with agape love, but we are to phileo one another. We are to love one another with a brotherly affection. And why would he call on us to love one another with a brotherly affection? Because we're part of the same family And we are brothers and sisters uh, Doesn't mean that there isn't some rock'em sock'em robot Or whatever that goes on sometimes in a family But, uh, you know, we look past some of that stuff And, and we're to have a phileo A, a fond affection for other members uh, of, of the body of Christ I remember when I was a brand new Christian I heard a, a pastor teach that uh, According to the scriptures That we had to love other Christians But we didn't have to like them and uh... boy was that convenient to hear and uh... so uh... Anyway, I understood what he was trying to say. But if it's to the neglect of phileo love, a, a, a an affection for one another, a, a an understanding of what we're all going through in this world as Christians, then that's to misunderstand it. And the New Testament is filled with verses uh, that talk about uh, the need for brotherly love. Let me just read you one. Let brotherly love, Paul wrote to the Romans chapter 12, be or let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another and six other times in the New Testament that uh, call to brotherly love uh, is is given, so I suspect that this church was uh, characterized by a warm affection for one another, which is nothing like the Philadelphia uh, in the United States that I know. I'm just kidding, related to to that. At least they're sports fans. Right? They're, they got a low tolerance for incompetence in their sports people there in, in Philadelphia. Now, like um, all of the other churches that Jesus wrote to, Philadelphia was in the middle of a very, very pagan uh, culture. And uh, there was the worship of all of these pagan gods There was all of the drunkenness All of the sexual immorality uh, Associated with that in the ancient world and, and so here is a group of Christians That are having to make a stand against the flow of the world In order to be faithful to the Lord And sometimes we can think you know, Every generation can tend to think That this is the most whatever generation In the history of mankind and all But really in every generation It has required of God's people in order to be faithful to the Lord, a willingness to stand against the flow uh, of of the world and where the world wants to take us. And it was no different here for uh, these Christians in Philadelphia. The church is unique. Uh, among the seven churches along with the church of smyrna which was the second letter that we looked at and that those are the only two of the seven churches that jesus has no rebuke for there's not even correction it's pure commendation and encouragement that he delivers to them so there's two churches he has nothing but good to say to and then there are two churches that he has no good to say to at all it's all correction and uh, uh one of them is the church of sardis we looked at uh, last week, and then Laodicea, which we'll look at uh, next time. Now, because of this, because he has only commendation and and encouragement directed toward the Church of, of Philadelphia, every church wants to be the Church of Philadelphia. And every Christian likes to believe that we are, I am a member of the Church of Philadelphia, whether it's a, a part of, you know, this congregation or the, you know, the group of Christians all around the world that would be a part of this, this church. And so we all desire to be like that, and this letter uh, helps us to see a little bit about what's involved in that, what are the characteristics of, of that church. Notice his self-description, Jesus' self-description in verse 7. And he comes to them as he who is holy. He is, he is not telling them that they're not being holy. He is coming to them and he is encouraging them in the holy life that they are uh, living. And to remain holy in the midst of all of the ungodliness that's, that's all around them. And that's a needed encouragement. As a Christian tonight, if you're living a holy life, say, I'm I'm not perfect, but boy, I'm making progress here. And and I'm endeavoring to live this life for the Lord. Then Jesus, as he writes to this church of Philadelphia, that very concern in your heart makes you. is one of the characteristics of Philadelphia. And Jesus is always encouraging it in us. And and so he's encouraging uh, them. Maybe nobody else notices it. Maybe nobody else appreciates it Nobody's uh, sent you a card Or given you a phone call To thank you for the holy life That you're living And Jesus writes this letter And he's, he's blessed by it And and so however unpopular Being holy is in, in the world And all and whatever the price That a, a Christian or a church Pays to, to be holy It's worth it Because it's to be like him And I, And I like the phrase that that he uses there uh, in uh, verse 7 Jesus declares himself to be he who is holy he is holiness and uh, sometimes we look at the term holy and the word holy technically means to be set apart it is some it is someone that is set apart from the sin and wickedness and rebellion of the world, but not just set apart from that, but now set apart to God for his use and his purposes. That's what holiness is. You say, well that's a wonderful definition, but uh, I like pictures. <laughs> you know uh, I'm a visual learner. I'd like to, to what is that what in the world does that look like? It looks like Jesus. He is the personification of holiness. One of the great things about, I mean, look at you, just look around the room. Uh, but you come into a room like this and all, and, and the one thing, we don't want to be religious here. Uh, we don't want outward airs. We don't want man-made ideas of what it means to be holy, to waste our time. But we do want to be like Jesus who was just wonderful in every way in terms of who he was and what he was in every situation, perfectly holy, but not in, in, in just a way that mixed with people, made people want to change in their lives and, and, and all of these things. And, and, and so he is the definition of, of holiness, the greatest one we'll, we'll ever find. You say, what does holiness look like? Study the life of Jesus. What would be a holy response to a provocation? Look at what Jesus did then in the Gospels under provocation. What's a holy attitude toward sinners? Look at Jesus' attitude toward sinners. What would be the appropriate thing to say in this situation or in that situation? Find Jesus in the same situation and say that and do that. And we can have the absolute confidence that we're being holy in that situation. So Jesus is encouraging them to continue to live holy lives in the midst of the paganism and the uh, wickedness of the world. He isn't ashamed. He was not ashamed to be holy in this world. He's not ashamed of who he is today. He's not ashamed of his holiness at all. And we shouldn't be ashamed of, of being uh, holy at all, either. So, if nobody else does it, even if it, it, don't move from it, even if nobody else uh, has a concern for holiness, you're the ones that are right. You're the ones that are doing what's right, not the other way around. And, and may I say again, we do not reach the world by becoming like it in unholiness. No Christian. Nobody should, don't ever come up to me and say, you know, Pastor, I'm afraid I'm getting a little too holy. <laughs> Trust me, that is not a problem for anybody, however far along you are in the progression toward Christ's likeness. Just poke you in the eye and see how you're doing, you know, related to that. What would Jesus do if a pastor poked me in the eye? That kind of thing. So, um, this whole it, it, you you can't be too holy. We can't be too different from the culture that we're in. And uh, Jesus wants, not to be Pharisees, not to be legalists, but we can be holy and we can be loving at the same time. Because Jesus was, and that's, that's what it, it, it looks like. And so the members of the Church of Philadelphia, they don't view holiness as some kind of a liability in their life or something they've got to explain away or, or this kind of thing, some burden they've got to bear in life. They looked at a life of holiness and said it's a joy, it's a privilege to be holy, to be different from, from this world and what we once were. And I think that's true, isn't it? Notice he also describes himself as he who is true literally he who is truthful everything that jesus says and he's affirming them in this they don't doubt that he's just affirming it in them everything that jesus ever said is the truth about everything that he spoke about everything that he said about god is the truth Everything that he said about heaven was the truth. Everything that he said about hell was the truth. Everything that he said about light and dark was the truth. Everything that he said about life was the truth. Everything that he said about love was the truth, and judgment was the truth, and salvation was the truth. And in other words, we can bet our lives and our eternities on the truthfulness of what he has said. And some members of the Church of Philadelphia were doubtless lives in jeopardy because they were sticking to him as the truth. And to know him as the truth, to say, that's the only guy that's speaking truth in this whole big wide world. And a person understands that to be true and then lives in obedience to those scriptures, that person is never going to end up being disappointed. You'll never get 30 years down the road in all of this and say, wow, he missed it on that one. (laughs) He told me a lie there on that area. Isn't it wonderful to realize here tonight is... We're learning the Word of God as we're walking in the Word of God. How many millions and millions of lives in every kind of circumstance in human history has tested the truthfulness of God's Word and never found it to be false. Not one single time. It's completely reliable. And so Jesus is encouraging them that their trust in him, their trust in his words, it's well placed, they'll never be disappointed for having done so. And so the Church of Philadelphia is a church that recognizes that what Jesus has said is the truth. Now notice he also says, concerning himself, uh, he is the one who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. What is a key? We saw a little bit about it in chapter 1. A key represents authority. The person who has a key has authority over the lock and thus authority over the door. He has the authority to lock it or to leave it unlocked. That key gives him authority. Uh, When I was a a young boy, I remember seeing the janitors at uh, school. And I don't know if every young boy was like like I was, but boy, I liked keys, and uh, now they, I don't know what they got, they got one little thing here, they push a button, I don't know if janitors even wear keys anymore, I don't know if you call them janitors anymore now, they probably have some super spiffed out kind of title and everything, and, but we can all be servants of the Lord, and what God's called us to do, that's a good title, isn't it? What's your spiffed out title? I'm a servant of the Lord, alright, alright, you're a holy one then, aren't you? answers like that but anyway so the um where am I going here on all of this but but I I did like see those janitors they walk you could hear them from halfway across the campus you know and they got ching chong ching and you you just as a boy you just look and say they can open up every door in the school wow you know the power that that he had and the authority just by virtue of, of possessing those keys and, and Jesus, what Jesus is saying is true of a janitor and a school is true of Jesus and all of creation. He has authority over all of it. All of it, every single bit of it. And when he opens something, no man, no combination of men can close it. And when He closes a door, no man and no combination of men can open that door up. He has authority over it. complete authority. He is sovereign. He is almighty in in His authority. And you notice He talks about the key of David. Wow, I don't know if a young boy, if I'd have heard that there was, He's got the key of David on his keychain. What I might have done, if I even understood it. But the reference from that key of David It's from the Old Testament book. Isaiah, remember the the Old Testament interprets the book of Revelation. It comes from chapter 22. And there was a king by the name of King Hezekiah. He had an unfaithful servant named Shebna. And he was replaced by a godly servant by the name of Eliakim. Uh, Isaiah 22 verses 20 through 22 for your note takers. And so Eliakim was given the key of David. He was given the key that that the king had possession of. And to have the key of David to be this position of the treasurer uh, in the lineage of the kings of David through the Old Testament meant you had power over the treasury. You could open that door up. You could close that door up. All access to the treasure happened through you. The treasurer also had complete authority over who got before the king and who didn't come before the king. He controlled all access to the king. And what Jesus is saying was true of Eliakim there under Hezekiah in a physical realm concerning the physical king of Israel is true of Jesus concerning heaven. He is the one that gives us access to all of the treasures of heaven. He is the one that provides us with the means to have access to the Father or not. He's the one that does it. And so it was a physical picture of, of what is true of Jesus spiritually. And he's just telling them, I'm, I'm in control of everything. Physical, spiritual, all of that. And it's important that, that we don't forget that. About uh, Philadelphia, about Modesto, about our own lives. No one can successfully interfere with his plan for our lives. That's something we can rest in. He's going to accomplish his, his will and, and his plans. Now, as we uh, uh, shall see in, in verse 9, they were being persecuted by uh, these uh, the synagogue of Satan. These religious leaders probably had the ears of people in high places there in, in the city of, of Philadelphia and all. And I think Jesus is reminding the church of Philadelphia that we uh, have the ear of someone in a much higher place. Uh, than that uh, he is he is uh, we 've got friends in in high places, and uh, we don 't have to worry about the friends that the others others have now notice the characteristics of this church further, verse eight verse ten, He said they have a little strength and and the word strength is the word dunamos in in the Greek we get our English word dynamic from it dynamo dynamite, you know wow. And uh, so strength, he oh, but it's, they only got a little. Only, they're just little dynamos. That church at, at Philadelphia was a little dynamo in the eyes of the world, not in the eyes of, of God. The, the word little, it's uh, mikros, it means small, least, or little. It was used of Zacchaeus' uh, stature in the Gospels. I know the little hymn Zacchaeus was, a wee little man, a wee little man was he? That's all I know of it, so I'm not going to keep singing it any further than that. But the Bible says he was small of stature. Jesus is making his way down the road. He wants to see Jesus. The crowd is so big, he's short. So he climbs up in a sycamore tree and uh, and and he looks at Jesus. And then Jesus invites himself to lunch. This is fabulous. Uh, and, and household, uh, you know, salvation comes into his whole house and all. Oh, it's a, a wonderful account. So, like Zacchaeus, this church was probably a church that would have been pretty easy to overlook. Probably a small congrega- congregation numerically, comparatively speaking. Probably didn't have uh, a lot of uh, political clout or didn't have the movers and shakers in politics or in the culture attending it in, you know, any kind of great number or anything. But though they might have been overlooked by the world, they weren't overlooked by God. And they were just what he looks for when he wants to do something wonderful. And I think it's it's so critical that we do not limit what we think God might want to do through a church on the basis of, as the old saying goes, numbers and noses. Budget and the size of of the number of, of people that are coming, numerically. Because here's a church that's relatively small and powerless in the world's eyes, but it was a holy church, and it was an obedient church, and it was a faithful church, and God has always prized those things. Above money, above numbers, above anything. You Think about Gideon and his army in the Old Testament. Our success does not depend upon our size or upon our strength. God's strength is made perfect in weakness, the Bible says. And you remember that concerning yourself tonight. What is God calling you to do? What is he calling you to step out and do in, in obedience to him? Oh, my, own, oh, to, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. god oh, there's no way, you know. You're looking for some powerful dynamic, what, you know. and No, no he's not. Here's what he wrote to the Corinthians, the Lord did through Paul. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the wickedness of God, the weakness of God rather, is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. God isn't looking for great strength in us. He's got all the strength he needs. He's got all the strength he needs. He's just looking for someone who's weak enough that when he begins to pour his strength through that person, That that person will never for the rest of their life Convince themselves that it has its origin in them And then rob God of the glory Don't ever let your lack of power or your lack of stature How you think of David, you know Here he is, the last of the sons And he's out there And nobody, when they say Samuel says, bring in the sons And and dad calls in the sons They don't even bring him in I mean, what an insult, you know. That's that's exactly who God chose to make the greatest king in the history of Israel uh, next to the Lord Jesus Himself. God's got all the power that he needs, all the strength, all the wisdom, all the everything that he needs. He's just waiting, he's just looking for weak vessels to pour that through. But we get all paralyzed by our weakness. And we don't realize we're the very thing that he's looking for. And so listen and, and look at this related to, to Philadelphia. I mean, he, he has tremendous promises that he gives to weakness. Promises that are great enough, more than enough to make up for their little strength. And, and then for him to, to receive the glory. That's that's all the Lord is looking for Notice also in verse 8 They've kept his word This was a church that that knew God's word And more than just knowing God's word They obeyed his word They kept his word Their lives marked by obedience And uh, that obedient life is not just good for us It is good for us But also means a lot to Jesus And I think that's important to just stop And and think about that Because that takes our motivation Into another place I'm going to obey you because I want to bless you, Lord. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's how I can express my love to him. I can't, I can't send him a card. I can't phone him. I can pray. I can do these things. But I, how, every time we obey his word in, in this world and obey him to go against the flow, that, that blesses his heart. He looks at it. He realizes that it's cost you something to do that. And that makes it a blessing to Jesus and a blessing uh, to the Father. And so no matter how much the world was putting pressure on the church of, of Philadelphia to get them to compromise the Word of God, they wouldn't do it. It's an uncompromising church and built upon the Word of God. Great, great respect for the Word of God. You could not... Move them from it. And that's a great church. I'd, I'd like to say thank you to every home fellowship leader, every pastor in this town, and every one that's teaching in the children's ministry or all of the Bible studies that go on through the week here and this church and way beyond that is sticking with the Word of God today and, 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 and obedient to the Word of God. Thank you for doing. That, that's a blessing to the Lord and the rest of the body of Christ. Thank you for your faithfulness. Notice in verse 8, they did not deny his name. So it would seem we see that synagogue of Satan that claim to be Jews, claim to represent God, but they don't really represent God because they're opposing the gospel, they're opposed Jesus and his ministry, they oppose the work of, uh, uh, of, uh, through the apostles and the church in, in the early church and, and, and all. They, there was that opposition, persecution against them, but in all of it, they didn't cave on, on the truth. They did not deny Jesus' name. And that name represents his nature. They did not deny the facts about who he was. God the Son and the Son of God. Virgin born. Perfect sinless life. The miracles that he performed. Death, burial and resurrection. And you know you can get popular today by compromising in those areas. But it's a short popularity because eternity goes on for a very, very long time compared to this little blink that life is in, in this life. And to their credit, when they might have been able to ease the persecution that was coming against them by denying His name, denying uh, some facts about Him and the truth about Him as, as revealed in the Word of God, they wouldn't do it, not for any amount of money, not for escaping uh, any amount of, of difficulty that, that they were, were going through. come and teach a Bible study not in this church wouldn't happen in this church praise the Lord for that so if I got goofy you'd all boot me out it's wonderful but, but to become accepted and have the applause of man by just saying well, he was a great teacher nothing more nothing less but he was that Tremendous prophet, tremendous example that that he was in all. But to deny the other things, this church wouldn't do it. Isn't it funny? If you ever watch Larry King? It's a useless thing, but sometimes he has some interesting guests on. And uh, whenever he kind of has a Christian guest on there, um, sometimes I'll, I'll catch that. And it's funny when he has a Christian on there, he always asks them the same question. I mean, he just never fails. He waits till the second half hour. But he does ask it. Are you one of those Christians that believes that the only way to go to heaven is by believing in Jesus? If you're going to... Listen, if you ever are invited to go on Larry King as a Christian... Know that that question is coming. I mean, settle the answer before you get on there. Well, you know, I mean, I oh, I think it was your. Well, all right, you know, and and if you hem and haw all around the whole thing and everything, and uh, you know, things get can be that much more friendly for you. But if you stop and you say, yes, he is. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Him. And it doesn't matter what I believe or don't believe at all. That's what the Bible says. That's why it's the truth. And, 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 and if someone was on the show from the church of Philadelphia, that's the answer that, that they would, would give. They were faithful to the Lord, to His name, to His nature, to the truth that He taught in any environment Whatever the pressure and, and whatever the, the persecution that was, they were facing to do that. Notice also in verse 10, their lives were marked by perseverance. He said, "You've kept my command to persevere." And the word "persevere" is the word "hupamoni." I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. I've just pronounced that way for 20 years, so you stick with stuff that that, that long. Hupamoni, you know. I don't know if is this a terrible thing in Italian. No, no I didn't. Uh, there's some Italians. They'll tell me afterward too. <laughs> mostaccioli, mostaccioli. They got me right on that one, I think, unless I'm pronouncing that wrong, you know. It's wonderful. I love it being kept in line. It's fabulous and, and all. So but but the hoopamoni is just a steadfast endurance. That means you just keep on going no matter what. And that's what characterizes church too. that that The the members of the church of Philadelphia, they didn't quit when things got hard. No matter what, they stuck with the Lord and they just kept moving forward. Now notice Jesus' promises to this church. In verse 8, he promises them an open door. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. The open door represents the open door to take the gospel out into the world. The great commission that the Lord has given to uh, to us to reach out beyond their own church and into the surrounding world with the gospel. Just to preach that gospel to everyone else in the world so that they have a chance to let that gospel change their lives in the same way that it changed our lives. So here they're little little old church and they look and say, well, what are we going to do? Let's just... Let's just keep the place painted and pray for the Lord to come back. No. Despite their size, they were engaged in the Great Commission. Going going through that, that open door. Jesus, in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, He said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. Even to the end of the age And he begins that whole Great great Commission with a single word, doesn't he? Go Why? Because an open door is useless If no one will walk through it And no one will go And here was a church that just They couldn't take They could. There wasn't one that just took the, the Great Commission there And they could preach six sermons on the Great Commission From six different angles They were a church that knew what the Commission was and then they obeyed that, that commission. And so Sometimes in some of the different churches, uh, maybe you've been to one where, as you're driving out of the parking lot, they have the little signs there as you're driving out. Uh, Please don't honk at the other Christian in the car. No, it doesn't say that. Uh, it doesn't say, that. Just say, you are now entering the mission field. I've always liked that. We haven't put them up, anything like that. I don't like it enough. To put them up just yet But I, I I like the reminder I like the reminder on that And it's the truth now Okay, well, this was, we're pit stop We got built up in the things of the Lord But now I'm, I'm back in the mission field here on that And this this church had An understanding of that It's not it, 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 in, in no church No matter what our size Is to forget about that open door You know Why? because we 'll get we 'll get introspective, and we 'll start to either start to tear one another apart or it 'll turn into a big bless me club, which then produces a bunch of spoiled brats, and then you do tear one another up. It is a healthy thing for a church to have an outward focus to reach the community they 're in to reach the world that that we find ourselves in, and it was a characteristic of of that. Early church. Now one of the things that was interesting, or the church there at Philadelphia, one of the things that's interesting to know about uh, the city of Philadelphia, that it was established with the deliberate intention that it would be a missionary city for the Greek language and Greek culture into the surrounding areas. The surrounding areas that they considered to be barbarian. Uh, Greeks and those that were steeped in Greek culture considered any group of people, didn't matter how educated you were or how ancient your culture was or anything, anyone that did not know the Greek language and was not steeped in Greek culture, they were barbars. They were barbarians. And nobody became unbarbarian until they were uh, steeped in the Greek culture. And the interesting thing, and everyone in Philadelphia knew this whole thing, the interesting thing about the city of, of Philadelphia is that as they were a staging area for Greek culture into the surrounding area, into Lydia, into Pergia, that they, by 19 A.D., the Lydians had completely forgotten their own language and they were all but Greeks, were told, by historians. And, and the staging for advancing Greek culture, it it was done peaceably, it was done quietly, not by force, and it was effective. And the church in Philadelphia knew about their history, and what Jesus, I think, is saying in essence is, if the world had done a lesser thing, with lesser power, under a baser motivation, For the sake of the advancement of Greek culture, then we should be willing to do the same for the gospel and the advancement of the gospel and the salvation of men and women. So they they were a church that did not allow their size to keep them from doing great things for God. They had a world vision unlike the church of laodicea which we'll see was completely self-consumed notice in verse um, 9 jesus promised them that he would make their persecutors to be humbled before them and to come to know of his love for them the synagogue of satan again uh, a, a synagogue a jewish synagogue made up of, of people who were claiming to represent God, did not represent God. Jesus even spoke to the religious leaders, some of the religious leaders in, in his day, and he said, You were of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, and because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks it from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. He he tells them, that's your dad, and then he describes their dad. Again, I mean, uh, it's just stunning, (laughs) stunning boldness. (laughs) As we said before, nobody even looked at these guys cross-eyed. Nobody argued with them, they never heard anything but the applause and and the praise of man all of the days of their life, these Pharisees and religious leaders. Jesus comes in, in a public setting, tells them that they're of their father the devil. Because they were opposing the Son of God, opposing the Messiah. This is not true of all Jews, he's not talking about all Jews. He's talking about a particular kind of Jew and Jewish religious leader here. Opposing the church, opposing the gospel, opposing the salvation of of mankind. And Jesus said he's going to make them come and worship at their feet. And uh, thus to make them know that he has loved them. I'm going to make, I know they're they're hassling you right now. Oh boy. But one day. I'm going to humble them, and I'm going to let them know in no uncertain terms that you're on the right side of things, in terms of heaven and in terms of eternity. Sometimes when you're in that kind of place, and the persecution is coming from religious circles, think, oh man, how do you get through to them? How do you let them know? And they've got all the power, and we're just this little thing, and they're hammering us every single day. Jesus don't waste your time. Don't waste your time I'm trying to hammer back on that. I'll take care of that. Before this whole thing is said and done, I will make sure everybody knows that I have loved you. You know why this is important? Because if we, decide, if we don't leave that to God to defend our reputation... A great old saying is if you defend your care or if you take care of your character, God will take care of your reputation. And it's true. It's a generalization, but it is is true. God knows how to take care of, of our reputation. But if we choose to fight against those that are persecuting us, you know what will happen? We'll never go through the open door. And I think we have to be careful of this. There's a balance, so don't take it too far and an extreme. But we're in the middle of a culture war in the United States of America. And it is literally a war for the soul and the direction of this country. The stakes are unspeakably high if you can talk about the, 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 the temporal you know, time, not talking about eternity. It is huge. It is important. But never get so bogged down in the cultural war that you cease to preach the gospel or to share the gospel or to let people know of God's love for them, of what He's done for them. We can roll up our sleeves and be in a fist fight with every other kid on the block and maybe even win every fist fight. But how many people have gone into eternity now during that block of time? The Apostle Paul is the classic example of this. Talk about being hounded every step of every missionary journey by people that are just doing what is unfair, what's wrong, all of that. And and, all. and what did he do? He stayed on message. You could not get him off of message that Jesus is the promised Christ according to the scripture and salvation is found in him he could have spent the last 30 years of his life fighting these people every single day he didn't he did what he had to do to stay free of them and keep doing what God had called him to do and to be and, and we have to watch that today keep taking that gospel out to people There are people that are not actively engaged in the culture war. I'm not saying that people aren't called to fight that battle. God calls people for that kind of thing. But don't forget all of the people, and I exhort myself, that are just waiting to hear that gospel for the first time in this city, the city of Modesto. It's the buckle of the Bible Belt in California. Now, it's not much of a Bible Belt in California, but it is a Bible Belt that we're in, and yet so many people haven't heard uh, the gospel yet. And, and so. Then notice in verses 10 and 11. Jesus promises to deliver them from the hour of trial. Which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And this appears to be a promise to deliver them from the great tribulation. You know why? Because the great tribulation is a seven year period of Jesus pouring his wrath out. Upon a, a rebellious Christ rejecting World. It has nothing to do with God. Nothing, all, all of that and, and, and all. But you notice that that word, the, in verse 10, it, it's a specific event. It is, it is not a hour of trial, one of many. It is the hour of trial. He's talking about a specific event. And then notice that this trial is a trial that will come upon the whole world, the whole world. Not some of the world, not most of the world. Upon the whole world, all at the same time. And so you're, you're looking at, at the great, great tribulation. Notice, too, that his promise to the Church of Philadelphia and to the members uh, of this church all through the ages is that he will uh, keep them... Uh, it, it, he, he doesn't say that he will keep them through this, this time... The the way that the post-tribulation rapture folks believe. But he says that he will keep them from out of that, that time. Speaking of the removal from the world before the great tribulation. We'll talk about the rapture in depth another time. So, so this is this needed in, encouragement that it looks like everything's mounted up against you and, and, and everything there in the church of Philadelphia, all the wickedness and, and the righteous are being persecuted and, and all of these things. But one day all of that's going to change because He's going to pull you out before this great tribulation that comes upon the earth. And so this church at Philadelphia is looking for the rapture, looking for Jesus to return. It's not gearing up to go through through the great tribulation. And then Jesus promises them in, in verse 12, eternal stability. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Pillar spoke of permanence in, in, in those days. They'll have a permanent, immovable place, and the presence of God of God they will be standing before God and when all else in the world has fallen when all else in the world lies in a heap now philadelphia was like california it was earthquake country and so they knew what it was like to have an earthquake shake through their city and then only have the pillars still standing after after the earthquake and, and, and so nothing in the city of Philadelphia Could be considered stable or sure In the light of, of the earthquakes And, and all of, of that But Jesus is saying Heaven is sure for us and, and it's stable And it's safe I like what it said about Abraham In the book of, of, of Hebrews Concerning him For he, Abraham Waited for the city Which has foundations Whose builder and maker is God There is no sure foundation in this world There is a sure foundation in in heaven. And then notice, he says, he promises that he shall go out no more, verse 12. And when an earthquake would hit the city of Philadelphia, what the people would do, or throughout that whole region, is they would leave their homes. They'd leave the city, and they'd camp in these little tents and everywhere around the the city, because they wouldn't want to go back in for the aftershocks. So life for them was a thing of of abandoning the city and being out in this place, coming back in when they felt it was safe until the next, in this whole cycle of of things. Always living in fear for their safety. And I, I think that Jesus is saying in heaven, there'll be no fear for our safety. We'll be safe and secure. And then he said, to them in verse 12, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Now, in the ancient culture, when you wrote on something, it was an indication that it belonged uh, to you. When you wrote your name on something, it better belong to you. But when Jesus writes his name on something, that's an evidence that what he's writing on, that belongs to him. You only write your name on what belongs to you. And in heaven, it will be clear that we belong to him. Forever identified with the Lord. And so, in all of this, there's this encouragement to live now, faithfully, for the life that's going to come. Because to live faithful now is to be; it will be well rewarded for eternity. And then in verse eleven, he reminds them of his soon uh, coming, and uh, he said, "Behold, I'm coming quickly. It's going to happen suddenly. It's going to happen quickly uh, when it does happen." So tonight, anybody here looking for the Antichrist? I'm not. They had a show on the Antichrist and the History Channel, and um, and and and. Uh, well, and I, you don't need my commentary on it. But, uh, you know, one of the, they talked about some Christians looking for the coming of the Antichrist. <laughs> have, a, have a nice day. You know. <laughs> great. I'm not gearing up for the great tribulation. I'm gearing up for the Lord's return. I am watching. I am waiting. And I am busy about his business, working. Gives you three W's. I don't do that often. So you take advantage. Watching, waiting, and working as as we wait for his return. And it's always an encouragement to be reminded that that might happen uh, tonight. And, And so he tells them, in light of all of these things, that he's coming quickly, the proper response, hold fast, he said, to what you have, so that no one may take your crown or your reward. Not talking about salvation, talking about our reward. What do they have? They have love. They have service. They have obedience to God's word. They're not denying him. They're persevering. They have the promise of deliver from trial. They are looking for the Lord's return. And Jesus said, you hold on to all that because there's a reward at the end of all of that. And then he exhorts them, the church, the Holy Spirit, to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches there in verse 13. Every church Wants to be the Church of Philadelphia. I assume that's true. All of them that I that I know. And here we have the characteristics of the Church of Philadelphia. And the characteristics of one who belongs to the Church of Philadelphia, no matter what church they attend. And the characteristics are they have a love for holiness, they have a love for the truth. They have a love for obedience. They do not deny Jesus' name. They obey His command to persevere. They don't quit when it gets hard. They have a little strength, but they have great promises from God. They have a concern for the world, a great commission. They take advantage of open doors. In other words, they serve. And they live in the expectation of Jesus' return. They live with an eternal focus. They have the promise of a future crown, of a of, of future reward. And they have the promise of an unshakable, eternal Future with the Lord. And those are the marks of one who belongs to the Church of Philadelphia, and it's wonderful to belong to that church because it is that church that blesses Jesus' heart.